0: Well, thank you for joining us for Conversations with Trust Experts. My name is Matthew Blottmacher, President and CEO of Peak Trust Company. And most of you know, we work with attorneys and advisors who want reliable and accessible expertise to help them with their clients' complex trust needs. Today, we are very excited to be joined by Gideon Rothschild, a partner at the law firm Moses & Singers, to get his thoughts on what asset protection strategies we should be discussing with clients now. In his position as co chair of Moses and Singer's private client group, Gideon serves high net worth individuals with assets ranging from 5 million to well over a billion. Gideon distinguishes himself from many of his peers and his estate planning recommendations, that they are always integrated with asset protection objectives. Gideon, welcome and thank you truly for joining us. Um, the first thing that many people are wondering in light of the pandemic combined with the upcoming elections is what should clients, be thinking about right now? And what you, what is keeping your clients up at night?
1: Well, Matt, thank you, first of all, for inviting me to do this podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure. And uh, I've been working with Peak a uh, long, long time, probably since, since Peak was founded in 1997, I think around there. Uh, so uh, we go back quite a ways and uh, it's always a, a wonderful relationship. You guys are one of the best trust companies that uh, I've had the pleasure to work with. So I'll I'll say that uh, to start with. But in terms of what's keeping people up at night, uh, there are two things, I guess. One is uh, what impact COVID has had on their business uh, activities. Uh, And uh, as I'm sure many people have have contacted you uh, in the last uh, six months, uh, one of the big issues uh, on their minds is uh, what happens if uh, my business goes under as a result of COVID? My office is closed. My restaurant is closed. My Retail establishment is closed. I have no customers I, and I can't even open it up. And, and so we've seen a lot of bankruptcies filed all over the country. Uh, there'll be more to come. And, uh, and I've been getting a number of calls over the last uh, few weeks, especially uh, people wanting to protect their assets. And unfortunately, as I've told them for, for 30 years that I've been doing this work, uh, when the clouds are formed, it might be too late to think about asset protection. So we need to take a very careful look at clients who are interested in doing asset protection now to make sure that they're not insolvent. Uh, We don't want to cause uh, unnecessary litigation for PEAK, nor for ourselves as lawyers. Uh, Maybe that we might be uh, uh, unwittingly brought into a situation where perhaps if we didn't do our due diligence properly, we might wind up uh, on the short end of the stick uh, with a creditor lawsuit or even worse, possibly even ethical charges, uh, d- disciplinary charges. So I think it's uh, important to do your due diligence to make sure that it's not too late uh, to engage in, in any kind of asset protection planning. Uh, that being said, uh, we are sitting in a, in a very unusual situation right now, possibly if the Biden uh, folks get elected and uh, the Democrats take control of Congress, uh, I think that uh, we'll likely see a reduction in the estate tax exemption, which is, uh, as your listeners know, is currently 11,580,000 uh, scheduled to go up again next year. But uh, if uh, Democrats get control, they are likely to bring it back down to possibly 5 million, uh, possibly even three and a half million by some quarters' uh, uh, predictions. And so uh, that is a fantastic opportunity for particularly high net worth individuals to give away up to 11. dollars if they're married 23 million. Uh, that they can give away, gift tax-free, and keep it out of their estates. It likely won't be clawed back. Uh, and all the future appreciation on it would be out of their estates. And uh, as an as a additional benefit, obviously, once they've given it away, it's likely going to be protected from any potential creditors. And what I always like to tell clients is before you consider a self-settled trust, that's an incomplete gift trust where the only benefit is asset protection from creditors. If you live in a non-self-settled trust state, non dap state, uh, then that might be viewed as a fraudulent transfer, particularly if their state of residence has adopted the Uniform Voidable Transfer Act, uh, which may make it per se fraudulent to establish a DAP domestic asset protection trust. So if you have other purposes in mind, if you're accomplishing other goals, such as estate tax savings, gift tax savings, possibly even income tax savings, if you do a DING, uh, then uh, a, a domestic uh, irrevocable non-grantor trust, uh, for those who are not familiar with the, with the terminology, uh, the, uh, the reasons for doing so might override any possible fraudulent transfer challenge, uh, particularly if you have significant assets remaining and you're not rendering yourself insolvent. So with these two factors uh, coming together right now, uh, I think uh, it's uh, an opportune time to begin to think about uh, using up that exemption, making gifts, and at the same time, uh, achieving some very significant asset protection planning. Well,
0: um, makes total sense. And,
1: and um, you know,
0: we've seen a, an increased um, amount of inquiry and uh, really conversation around You know, everything that you just touched on, you know, uh, potential bankruptcies, um, every business, you know, has been affected by COVID, particularly, you know, those high net worth individuals Um, and the election, of course, in any election year adds to the volatility and uncertainty of what's going to happen. And
1: it's a catalyst for people to plan. And this year's um, election is is definitely uh, no different. And by the time you, you have this podcast on the air, you know we probably have about eight weeks to go to get any of that done. And right. so we're we're uh, uh, we, we've canceled all vacation time for our staff, uh, our associates, and our partners. And uh, and uh, we're full steam ahead here, trying to uh, finish up what uh, what clients are now wanting to do last minute. They wait, Everybody seems to wait till the end. It's another 2012 uh, uh, rush to get it done. And uh, and hopefully. Uh, it uh, it will be effective at the end of the day. Uh, one, one thing that, that's worth mentioning also is if, if there is a bankruptcy filing, of course, under the bankruptcy code, there's a 10-year look back in essence. So a 10-year window for any asset protection trust. Uh, if, if it was found to be done with uh, actual intent to hinder delayed afford creditors, and actual intent, as you know, is, is something that's more difficult to prove perhaps than just some constructive f- badges of fraud uh, and there again, if, if you can demonstrate that you had other purposes to engage in this planning, uh, you'll possibly be better off in beating that type of a challenge.
0: Yeah, well said. We, um, you know, key takeaway from, from that, that that I hear loud and clear is something that we had the opportunity to talk with clients about, but also our team quite often. is you know, it's never there's never a better time to plan than early, you know, when the financial waters are calm, so to speak, as you stated early. So, you know, starting to plan, you know, now, whether it's before year end or now before it's, you know, some issue that might arise years from now. Um, It's never too early to plan. So, um, Gideon, what are the strategies that you're using um, to consume that gift and or estate tax exclusion and protect clients from, the fear of possibly gifting too much during their lifetime um, whether it's related to you know the uh, rendering themselves insolvent or just that fear that you know giving too much to my beneficiaries or descendants down the line those sorts of issues
1: well that's a great question obviously you know we have clients you mentioned we have clients uh, that have as much as a billion dollars and for them it's uh, it's not difficult to give away 11 million or 23 million for that matter if they're married, uh, but take the more moderately wealthy client who's got maybe 30, 40 million. Uh, that would be a hard uh, thing to swallow that you, they're giving away half their net worth or even a client who might only have 15 million, can they give away 11 million now uh, with the assurance that they might have some ability to get it back, assuming they're, they're still earning in their earning years uh, they might not need to rely on those assets. Maybe those assets aren't income-producing assets, even, that they're relying on currently it might be hard assets. Um, and how can we set up a structure in which they might be able to get it back? Uh, as you know, a, a common technique that we've seen around for years now is is referred to as the SLAT, the Spousal Lifetime Access Trust. Uh, and that doesn't require you to go to a domestic asset protection trust jurisdiction like Nevada or Alaska. Uh, anyone can create that in their own state and have it uh, 100% protected from their creditors as well as their spouse's creditors. The fear, however, with that, take, and that's the first thing I, I'll usually suggest, rather than jumping right to the self-settled trust, which may have, if you're not in a self-settled trust state, and even if you are, may have some fraudulent transfer exposure. Uh, when you're doing a slat, it's a completed gift. You're using up your exemption, uh, but you have a possibility of getting it back because if you have a friendly trustee like Peak, uh, and the spouse asks for a distribution because uh, perhaps the grantor has uh, fallen on some hard times. Uh, Peak would understand uh, the need for that distribution and, and make the requested distributions from time to time and to that spouse. And perhaps that spouse is not one who likely will have creditors. Maybe uh, they didn't sign the personal guarantees. Maybe uh, they're not uh, exposed to the creditors the same way that the grantor spouse might be. So So there's a way of doing that. Of course, the the common concern I get there is well, what if we get divorced? Uh, how do I get access to those funds if my wife is a beneficiary? Uh, or what if my wife dies before me? Uh, how do I get access to those funds? So we have a number of uh, very creative ways of uh, uh, assuring the grantor that uh, that won't be a, a need for worry because, for example, we might uh, give someone a special power of appointment, your brother. Uh, Jonathan, I'm sorry, your uncle, Jonathan, uh, uh, came up with an article back in uh, 2019 in a state planning journal uh, talking about the this, this special power appointment trust where uh, a non interested party, a non beneficiary, non fiduciary, has the power to uh, direct the trustee to make a distribution to the grantor, even though the grantor is not a beneficiary. Uh, that's a lot less dangerous than a self settled trust because under a state law where they don't recognize debts, uh, that would not be considered a self-settled trust uh, because the set law is not a beneficiary thereof. Uh, Another approach might be to just include right in the trust document that in the event of the spouse's uh, death prior to the grantor, uh, the grantor becomes a beneficiary of the trust. So it only becomes a self-settled trust at that point in time. And if by then the risk of creditor uh exposure is gone or the statute of limitations is run uh, or what I mentioned earlier the 10-year period uh, to stay out of bankruptcy has passed uh, then at that point the grantors can can become a beneficiary so there are a number of different techniques to use in those in those situations. Uh, it's a little harder if the client is single uh, then you don't have a spouse to do a, a slat with Uh, But even there, you can set up a trust, let's say, for the benefit of children, uh, rather than going again right to the self-settled trust concept, set up a trust for the benefit of children, and then provide perhaps 10 years later, uh, the grantor becomes a beneficiary. Uh, And if the grantor doesn't need the funds at that point, the grantor can renounce that beneficial interest, perhaps, uh, so that it's not subject to a possible attack by the IRS at a later date when the grantor dies, because there is that uncertainty still with self-settled trusts. If there is some implied understanding between the grantor and the trustee that that there'll be distributions made, and in fact the pattern of distributions is made prior to the grantor's death, then there might be a a challenge from the IRS uh, on the state inclusion issue in 2036. So I think uh, the the more conservative approach might be don't make it self-settled from the start. Uh, Use up your exemption uh, properly as a completed gift, and and then uh, come back in uh, on the back end, perhaps. Uh, So there are ways of uh, creating exit uh, escape routes, if you will, to be able to provide for the grantor. Other ways of doing it uh, are to provide that the trustee can make loans to the grantor. Or perhaps you have a loan director under the Nevada statute. For example, you can have a bifurcated trust where you might have uh, a directed trustee, such as Peak. Uh, and then you might have, uh, you might appoint uh, loan directors, distribution uh, directors. Uh, those folks have uh, uh, in, in the distribution aspect, they have a fiduciary duty, but perhaps as a loan director, it might be a grantor trust power that's held in a non-fiduciary capacity. And so the loan director can direct the loan back to the grantor, even if the grantor is not a beneficiary of the trust. Um, and, uh, you know, as long as the loan is a bona fide loan, perhaps the, the grantor needs cash, needs liquidity, but the grantor has other assets still in their name uh, that don't provide any cash flow, sufficient cash flow for their needs. So they get a loan, and it could be a bona fide loan when they die. Uh, that loan is a debt of the estate, uh, deductible for estate tax purposes. Uh, and they've accomplished uh, their goal of using up their $11.5 million exemption before it uh, goes down to maybe 5 or $3.5 and they've protected those assets for the time being. Uh, if it's a grantor trust, they could swap uh, assets with a trust at a later date with other assets of equal value. So there are a lot of various techniques that, that we come up with, with our clients that, that will uh, put them at ease that if their financial circumstances change, they'll be able to, uh, to uh, uh, get to these assets or the income generated by them uh, at a later date
0: did thank you for that. Um, you you touched on, you know, something that is a common concern we get from clients, um, whether it's before they've done their planning or after, um, but particularly from, you know, kind of prospective uh, clients, which is, you know, I've heard trusts can be rigid or, you know, I've got this fear or that fear. And one of the things I think you did nicely was really showing the flexibility that can be drafted into trusts to deal with, you know, um, a, a variety of fears, kind of safety valves, if you will, for what happens if this. And, um, you know, what I would add to that is with competent legal counsel, um, you know, really good legal counsel, like, you know, Gideon and of course Moses and Singer, trust can be completely and um, entirely flexible to address some of these fears that <clears throat> that are, are commonly um, encountered.
1: Um,
0: so as, you know, I think you did a great job of a summary for our listeners. Some takeaways that I got from that, Gideon, please confirm if this is accurate. Um, you know, particularly using gift tax exclusion and the fear of gifting too much, clients might consider uh, slats, uh, possibly with you know the language um, in the document to either deal with a premature death of a spouse, um, the ability to make loans to grantors, the ability to substitute assets. And, and again, um, you know, really working with competent counsel to, to draft that trust as flexibly as possible. Um, so next, um, Gideon, how does asset protection trust legislation help with completed gift trusts or does it help?
1: So uh, there was a private letter ruling that uh, I wrote about with, with Jonathan, in fact, uh, uh, back in, uh, the ruling is 2009-44-002, so we wrote an article, I think it was in 2010, uh, which uh, described that ruling and why using a DAP, a domestic gas protection trust, uh, might allow a person to make a complete gift. Now, we've got to go back to the, the basic rules here. If I set up a trust for my own benefit in a non dap state, typically a common law state that uh, we still have, uh, we only have 19 states today that recognize DAP. So the other 31 states and the District of Columbia, uh, if, uh, if a client lives in one of those states uh, and they set up a trust for their own benefit, it's common law that, uh, or statutory law that that trust is void is against their creditors. Uh, and the IRS uh, position is that, well, if my creditors can get it, if I can relegate it to my creditors, then, then I haven't made a gift at all, uh, or at least it isn't a completed gift. Uh, And so if you turn that rule on its head and go to a state in which the legislature has enacted a statute that provides that a self-settled trust is protected from creditors, barring it being a fraudulent transfer, of course, uh, then uh, that trust, assuming that the grantor doesn't retain any other rights that would bring it in under section 2036, or 2038, any strings, uh, then that trust transfer is a completed gift transfer. Uh, that was very clear in that private letter ruling. What was not as clear in that ruling was what happens on death. And as I mentioned earlier, if the service can demonstrate at death that the grantor was receiving distributions on a regular basis, let's assume uh, the grantor is actually, he's a beneficiary, he's asking Peak for uh, a quarterly distribution of all the income that the trust is earning. Uh, and PEAK gives them that distribution, whether uh, there's some understanding or not in advance, uh, the facts of receiving that distribution for a long period of time ending at death uh, will cause that trust to be includable in the grantor's estate under section 2036 or 2038. And so as long as uh, that doesn't occur, uh, it should be uh, safe from an estate tax uh, uh, challenge. Now, there are a number of things that people can do if they've set up a trust, let's say put $11 in there, it's self-settled, they're young, 20 years later, they've accumulated enough assets of their own that they don't need that safety valve on that trust to be a beneficiary. They could at that point have a, a third party have the power to remove them as a beneficiary. That removal, even if it's done within three years of death, would not cause a state inclusion because at the time of their death, they're not a beneficiary. Now, if they're not certain, they want to, let's say their trust has grown from 11 million to 40 million, and they think that, well, they don't want to give up the ability to get it entirely, so they might bifurcate the trust into two separate trusts, divide it up, and have uh, one trust with, let's say, 30 million and one trust with 10 million, and they might remain a beneficiary as the $10 million trust and and give up the beneficial interest of of the $30 million trust. Uh, so, uh, that's, that's a way that you can, uh, manage the situation a little bit better. And, uh, and these trusts we've, we've done quite a few in 2012 where gift tax returns were filed, uh, and we didn't have any examinations. I can't say that, that they passed muster in an audit, but they certainly, uh, weren't audited, weren't examined and full disclosure to the IRS that these were self-settled trust and uh and the are accepted them as completed gifts the question will will be what happens when the grantors die interesting well said
0: uh the the takeaway i get from that is that completed gifts and asset protection in many ways go hand in hand so working with the state that has um that type of legislation helps to um even if it's not really a desired effect, helps to um, get the conclusion you want on the completed
1: gift. Right.
0: Specifically to look at 2009
1: 44 as a private letter ruling. Now, of course, private letter ruling is only of applicable course. to the taxpayer that, that requested it. And so that is not necessarily, uh, uh, you know, something you can rely on, uh, but it's a pretty good uh, reasoning tool. Sure. Definitely an indicator.
0: Um, getting the last question we have, you know, a little bit of one of those loaded questions in life, uh, particularly in this industry, you know, we get it a lot. Um, it's written about, talked about a fair amount. Um, it's this, let question. me guess, you, Matt. Yeah. I, you probably know it.
1: Why Nevada or Alaska?
0: Oh, well, you know, that is one of them, uh, that we, okay. get, you know, the difference of states and jurisdictions, right. Um, but it's do DAPs work
1: and, uh,
0: okay, maybe you can opine on
1: that. Sure. Well, you know what? We've had uh, uh, quite a few cat cases, decisions in courts, uh, which have gone the other way. That, uh, particularly with foreign ass protection trusts, have only been uh, a couple of uh, decisions. Uh, some out of Alaska, uh, some out of Delaware. You know, less than a handful uh, that I can think of that have dealt with uh, challenges to domestic gas protection trusts, but. Most of the unfavorable ones have, have come about in the foreign trust area. And, uh, and what I tell clients sometimes is, look, you know, assuming, again, you have to assume it's not a fraudulent transfer, because if it's a fraudulent transfer, uh, nothing's going to work. No transfers are going to work. But, but assuming that years have gone by, the statute of limitations has run uh, for fraudulent transfer challenges. And now the only question is, I live in New York and I set up a Nevada trust, uh, will the New York court respect the Nevada law? Uh, or will they apply New York's law, which will cause this trust to be available to my creditors? And, and one thing to think about is, well, if if and when I do get into a creditor situation, I might consider moving into one of those dap states. So by the time there's a judgment rendered against me, if I'm residing in Connecticut, let's say, which is not that far away from New York, uh, or I decide I want to move to Nevada. I'm not sure I want to move to Alaska, quite frankly, Matt, but <laughs> uh, but but if I want to move to Nevada, uh, I like a warm climate, I like to play golf. Uh, I'm not a fly fisherman, so I don't need the Alaska salmon. Uh, you know, I can move there, and by the time the judgment is enforced, I'm a resident of that state, and that state will apply the laws of my residency, and if Nevada respects its own laws, obviously, uh, then that trust should be protected. So that's always an option that's available to someone if, if they really get into a lot of trouble. Uh, fortunately, 99% of the clients we've done DAPS and, and foreign trusts for uh, have, have never run into any trouble. It, it just allows clients to sleep at night. And, and worst case scenario, I think, and, and our experience bears this out, is that it provides a client with leverage to negotiate a settlement. So even though they might not, we can't say that they work 100% of the time or that we have actual anecdotal evidence or, or better than that uh, decisions from the courts saying that they work because they haven't really been tested. It's surprising. They've been ran since 1997 now. Alaska was one of the first states to enact legislation. And and in fact, uh, you know, you'd think that with the thousands, I would imagine that you guys have tha- at least over a thousand, maybe much more than that, trusts uh, that are DAP trusts and then count every other state, 19 states. So uh, th- there's hundreds of thousands of, of trusts that have been settled since 1997. And yet it's surprising that so few decisions have come down. And I have to believe that that means that, you know, people have just not had a problem uh, to date uh, challenging them or they've been settled. Uh, and in our own experience, uh, they've given clients the ability to settle. Whereas if, uh, if you simply, uh, Hold on to the assets in your own name. You've got no negotiating leverage. You know, just turn the money over, write a big check to the creditor at that point. Might as well. So uh, so they do provide some benefit and it's not at a great cost either. Aside from the initial cost of perhaps settling them up, setting them up the legal fees, the annual trustee fees that trust companies like yours charges uh, is a, a mere pittance compared to what somebody might pay for insurance to so get an extra, you know, Ten million dollars of insurance, assuming they can even get it, to cover the particular risks that they're concerned about. Uh, you know, spending five to ten thousand dollars a year is uh, is a is a minor expense to to have that peace of mind.
0: Well said. We we completely agree. And um, we heard it said one time that setting up a DAP is the equivalent of buying an insurance policy. That that insurance policy doesn't build you. An impenetrable wall against creditors but it buys you a really good seat at the negotiation table exactly and at the end of the day if there is a creditor issue and it's ultimately settled um, it still might be unfortunate but most people would agree that there's in some way a, a victory there even if it's minor that maybe you you settle it rather than having to you know drag it out to its full course
1: and legal fees and Agreed. all agree fully Yep. Yeah. um
0: and and as you said you know Number of, of DAPs have failed, although it's you know a small fraction of the total that have been created, not only in Alaska but
1: throughout the United States. Now,
0: and of course,
1: they had bad they had bad facts, exactly. You know, and that's you know, that's really the driving force behind those cases. Ninety uh, percent of those decisions, if not more, uh, you read the facts and you go, well, this is clearly a fraudulent transfer, and regardless of what basis the court uses to strike them, uh, even if they don't apply the fraudulent tran- Transfer Law, oftentimes what they apply is is an incorrect uh, uh, application of the restatement of conflicts of law, uh, applying Section 273 instead of 270, uh, using public policy as a basis for um, uh, not validating those trusts. Uh, it doesn't matter. Those facts are, are, you know, bad to begin with. And so these are just result-oriented decisions.
0: Right. No, w- well said
1: better than I could have done. Um,
0: we feel the same. those failed for for the right reasons in many cases. The the legislation for asset protection wasn't created with the um, desire to allow people to intentionally defraud creditors. And so when those mechanisms fail, in all cases that we reviewed, it it was the right way for it to fail, it was supposed to. Uh, Just as you said, it was a fraudulent transfer regardless of how you conclude um, that it ultimately should fail. Um, Gideon, again, really appreciate your time, uh, genuinely and anything you'd like to leave our listeners with anything else we didn't cover today.
1: No, I think, I think the key is, you know, start early and, uh, start often.
0: Awesome. (laughs) Completely agree. What's the old adage that we, most of us don't plan to fail. We just fail to plan. That's right. That's correct. Well, Gideon, thank you again and look forward to, uh, being able to sit down and chat in person, hopefully sometime in the not too distant future, but but definitely, again, on uh, you know webinar, or podcast, or uh, something of that sort.